Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rick Allen Ross. Mr. Ross is the founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute. He's an internationally known expert regarding destructive cults, controversial groups and movements, and author of the book Cults Inside Out, How People Get In and Can Get Out. Since 1982, he has been studying, researching, and responding to the problems often posed by controversial authoritarian groups and movements. Ross has been qualified and accepted and testified as an expert witness in court proceedings across the United States, including U.S. federal court. He has also frequently assisted local and national law enforcement and government agencies. He has personally assisted thousands of families in an effort to help the victims of destructive cults, groups, and movements. Ross is one of the most readily recognized experts offering analysis about destructive cults, controversial groups, and movements in the world today. GQ magazine identified Rick Allen Ross as America's leading cult expert. And Britain's FHM magazine named him America's number one cult buster. He has been a paid consultant for the television network CBS, CBC, and Nippon of Japan, and has also was retained as a technical consultant by Miramax Disney. Ross's commentary has been quoted within publications such as Time Magazine, People, New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Boston Globe, and the Washington Post. His appearances on national television have included a wide range of venues from news programs such as The Today Show, CNN World News, Dateline ABC 2020 and 48 Hours, to popular interview shows such as Oprah, Dr. Phil, Inside Edition, and recently the Michaela Peterson podcast. Ross has lectured at many prestigious institutions and universities, and his analysis has been sought on virtually every major cult story for decades. Without further ado, Rick Allen Ross. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. Can you tell us, uh, our audience, um, how you got into the field of cults and becoming a cult expert? Yeah, Ben, it was uh, it was really kind of uh, serendipitous. Uh, let's say it it's all about my bubby. I had uh, a Yiddish bubby who immigrated to the United States through Ellis Island in 1906, and she spoke Yiddish as a first language. And she used to make me kichel and call me herikela, and I was very close to her. And she was my only grandparent. Uh, you know, because the other, my other grandparents had passed away. And at the end of her life, she was in a Jewish nursing home called Kivel in Phoenix. And I went to see her one day and she was, uh, she was really upset. And I said to her, Bubby Vusmasta, you know, what's happening? And she looked at me and said that this woman had come up to her in the nursing home and had tried to convert her to fundamentalist Christianity, and in particular, Pentecostalism. And I thought, what the heck is going on here? And I said, Bubby, who is this woman? And she said, she works here. And this led me on my path. Uh, I think you could say I was just really pissed that uh, anybody had bothered my Bubby, because she was there to, you know, you know, just be cared for. And it was a Jewish nursing home and I could not understand how this woman got in. I found out that 
a group called Jewish Voice Broadcast, which was kind of like Jews for Jesus, targeted the Kivel Nursing Home, had members of its uh, group become paid staff at the nursing home. And this woman was a nurse's aide. And so I worked with the director of of Kivel at that time, Meyer Kaplan, and we found out that five people that were on staff were were working with the Jewish Voice broadcast, and they were fired, and that began my uh, my my path. So I started with uh, the Jewish Federation of Phoenix, uh, working on committees to create guidelines and education about destructive cults and extremist groups. Uh, that led me to teach a course for the Bureau of Jewish Education, and then I worked for Jewish Family and Children's Service in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, the pathway. And then I began doing interventions, uh, helping families. And to date, I've done over 500 interventions in the United States and around the world. I've worked in Israel, uh, Asia, you know, Malaysia, Australia. I've, I've just been everywhere. And uh, I also have uh, been an expert witness in court cases, some criminal, mostly child custody cases. And uh, so that that that's how it happened. And it just kind of uh, took over. And what began as just trying to make my uh, the, the nursing home safe for my bubby uh, became a life's work. And I've been doing this work for 40 years. Wow. That's unbelievable. Actually, I interviewed uh, a woman, Shannon Newsen. I don't know if you know who she is, but she was in a one of these Christian cults that, as a kid. Her father was like a pastor in this cult, and she was trained to go into like YMCA's and old age homes and and these kind of places to like while people are on their deathbed, you know, they're lonely and they're they're kind of just they're 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 just happy to talk to someone. And she was converting them to Christianity on like in their final days. Um, and basically, uh, long story short, she ended up finding Judaism and she now moved, she moved to Israel she's married now and she, she fights, you know, she's a counter missionary in Israel. So I think that it's a pretty cool tie in, but, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing that you did. Um, I wanted to ask you just the definition of a cult and if you can give some historical, um, and recent examples. Okay, Ben, I would say that there are are three core characteristics that form the nucleus for any definition of a destructive cult. And these were first uh, published at Harvard University. They were written up by a man, Robert J. Lifton, uh, who wrote the book Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. And he published a paper at Harvard titled Cult Formation. And I think these three core characteristics are really the the they are the 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 basic mechanics of what makes a group a destructive cult. Number one, that there is an absolute totalitarian leader who has no accountability, that is the defining element and driving force of the group, and who becomes an object of worship. So whatever the group says it's about it ends up being about their leader. Uh, Typically, uh, it would be a founder leader, or it could be a a leader who came into the group at a particular point and became very 
powerful and defining of the group. Number two, that that leader uses identifiable thought reform and coercive persuasion techniques to gain undue influence over his or her followers. And then three, if we're going to call the group a destructive cult, the group hurts people. And this varies by degree from group to group. So there are some groups that just want your money. Then they maybe want free labor to make money, but it can escalate to criminal activity, physical sexual abuse, medical neglect, and an array of things. So you you look for those three core characteristics, the all-powerful leader who is worshipped by the group, the existence of thought reform as a means of group indoctrination, and finally, exploiting undue influence uh, to hurt people and take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. So an example of like... Uh... I heard you mention this on, I think it was on the Michaela Peterson podcast, but you mentioned that like Hitler is an example of a cult leader, but not, not necessarily the Nazi party. Can you, can you explain that a little bit? Cause wow. they're, it, it, they are obviously a cult, but, but he, they were saying Heil Hitler. They were, they were, you know, it was all about him. He was like the, if it wasn't for him, there wouldn't be a Nazi party. Let's just put it that way. Well, I would say the Nazi party was a political cult. Right. And it was established by Adolf Hitler, who became the defining element and driving force of what was called the Third Reich. And mm -hmm. all of the people that that Hitler gathered around himself, his sycophants, his quislings, they all worshipped him as if he were like a god. And so I would say that the Nazi party was a political cult, a very destructive political cult that you know, devastated the world. I, I would say today we can see a similar uh, a similar cult in North Korea. Uh, the absolute leader, Kim, is worshipped by his people. He's virtually a deity. He is the defining element and driving force of North Korea. Uh, whatever he says is right is right. Whatever he says is wrong is wrong. And if you disagree with him, you're very likely going to be assassinated. So, very similar to Hitler, we have Kim. And I think that when the Ayatollah Khomeini was uh, ruling over Iran, he was very much worshipped by the people, and he became the defining element of the revolution. I, I can recall when he died, people just flinging themselves on his coffin uh, because they were so overcome with grief and, and it was a kind of grief that you see when a destructive cult leader passes. Yeah, actually, my community, I come from a Persian community um, in, in New York, and uh, we very much uh, resonate with what you just said. That's, that's very much etched in our uh, collective memory. Um, so what are the common like cult techniques um, that people should look out for? And what kind of people are generally susceptible to being pulled into a cult? Well, I think the person who is happy and content with their life is less likely to be vulnerable. Uh, but it could happen to anyone at a particularly vulnerable time in their life. And in some instance, instances, they're, they're really not uh, feeling bad, but they're recruited anyway. So basically what we need to understand about these groups is, is that they're incredibly deceptive, that it's a kind of bait and switch con. 
that what they tell you they're all about is not really what they're all about. And you don't find that out until you get more deeply involved, more immersed in the group, and, and therefore more under their influence and control. So they really kind of shut down critical thinking through their indoctrination process, which makes it very difficult for people that become you know, trapped within a cult to leave. But I would say people are initially tricked into a cult. That is that they are lied to, they are deceived, and frequently the person who's talking to them, that, that person might be a romantic interest, a co-worker, a family member who has become involved in the group and who that person trusts, and therefore that becomes another means of recruitment. And once you're inside, what you begin to realize is that this is about the leader. Uh, you're, the leader is omnipresent. Uh, the leader is always right. Anyone that is critical of anything the leader says or does is uh, labeled in a negative way and could be even thrown out of the group if they continue to disagree with the leader. Uh, people become socially isolated. They're so involved in the group it's to the exclusion of their family, their friends, as they become just hyperactive in the group. Uh, and, and you realize when you're in the group that people that have left are stigmatized, that mm -hmm. there really is no legitimate reason to leave. And if people leave, they're judged and they're judged negatively. And so when you see a group that meets those criteria in the way that they're behaving around you and the dialogue you're having with these people as you enter, uh, those are warning signs that you should pay close attention to. Yeah, um, that just brings to mind uh, Scientology. Like, like first, um, L. Ron Hubbard wrote these books about, you know, Dianetics, and it just seemed like something, you know, just a psychology book or something. And then if you join Scientology, you go through all these rungs and you have to kind of cut people off who are suppressive persons, so to speak. I don't know what they called it. And um, they once you reach a certain level, then you're privy to like information that, uh, you know, you, you no one on the bottom gets. Um, and you're so invested at that point that you're just willing to. I was listening to uh, Leah Remini talk about it on, on the Rogan podcast, and she was saying how, you know, you're like she was like, this is it. But you, you're so invested that you're like, you know, it's so ridiculous, but, you know, there's got to be something to it. Maybe I don't understand it right now. Um, and that's really like the danger of of these cults is because it's you never you're never really uh, fully aware of what's happening. Well, yeah, I think in Scientology, Ben, uh, you you may be in Scientology for a very long time and never reach uh, the level called operating fate in three or OT3, when they tell you their basic primary belief, which is that an alien being in outer space sent uh, beings to Earth 75 million years ago, and that the residue of these beings, their spiritual residue, or their ghosts, you might say, are haunting this Earth and attaching to people, calling them uh, body thetans, Scientology claims to have the only technology that can rid you of their influence. 
Uh, but you don't find this out until you reach OT3. And many people in Scientology never get there. It's very expensive to move up uh, the ladder in Scientology. And unless you're really rich, um, you know, it may take you a while and cost you quite a bit of money. Uh, but people like Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise is an OT7 or 8, John Travolta, the same, Jenna Elfman, the same. And uh, so they know this uh, mythology that Hubbard created, which I don't think it's a coincidence that he was a sci-fi writer and that the primary story or, or mythology of, of Scientology is based on science fiction. Uh, and, and Hubbard, who, you know, kind of cast himself as a philosopher king, was really just a Pulp Fiction writer Mm -hmm. uh, who never graduated college and who made many false claims about his biography. You know, they kind of lionized him in Scientology, exaggerating various aspects of his life, for example, his military record. So mm -hmm. I think that Scientology is a good example uh, because L. Ron Hubbard is Scientology. I mean, his writings, his beliefs, the system that he created, that's Scientology. It's all about Hubbard. I think the phenomenon that fascinates me the most is that you can actually show people that you're in a cult. You can prove it to them. You could show You could say, here are all the qualities of, you know, uh, you're, you're actually in a cult. You know, they're telling you not to um, think for yourself and they're telling you to cut people off and they'll still just like double down and triple down. They, 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 they refuse to acknowledge it, or maybe they do acknowledge it, but they don't care. They're like, you know, as long as it's not a destructive cult, then what's wrong with being in a cult? So for me, that's like extremely uh, troublesome. Well, look, uh, you have to understand from the, from the mindset of the person who's in the group. If it's a Bible-based group, if it's a religious group, frequently the people that are involved feel that if they disagree with the leader, they are disagreeing with God. If they leave the group, they are leaving God. So it isn't that they're feeling like they're it, it's their ego or it's their their own personal, uh, you know, desire to be right. It's mm -hmm. their fear that if they leave, they will have have betrayed God, mm -hmm. or in the case of Scientology that um, that it will affect future lives because they believe in reincarnation. And of course, you know, uh, in a very real way, if you are a Scientologist uh, and you leave, you can be designated as a suppressive person, an SP. And anyone that associates with an SP is what Scientology calls a PTS, potential trouble source. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be that. You want you and you don't want to have to be uh, labeled in a negative way in Scientology because then people will go through a kind of disconnection process where they cut you off. Uh, there was just an article that appeared recently about Tom Cruise. Uh, he probably hasn't physically seen his daughter in a number of years, uh, simply because Katie Holmes probably designated as an SP because she divorced him and left Scientology, Surrey then would be a PTS. So Tom Cruise doesn't associate with his uh, daughter, his only biological child, 
simply because of his beliefs in Scientology. That's that's what I think. That's what it appears to be. Wow, that's crazy. So um, does the cult need to be an organized group uh, that like holds meetings or uh, can an individual fall into the trap of, let's say, uh, something like via politics or conspiracy theories or social media influencers and even something as unthreatening as like health coaches? Like, how do we know uh, if you think something seemed like kind of borderline, right? Well, first of all, you know, as I said on uh, Michaela's podcast, we let's just not label anything a cult that we don't like. So, for example, there are people on the right that say, well, the woke movement is a cult or uh, or, you know, the Black Lives Black Lives Matters group is a cult. No, they're not. They don't have an absolute authoritarian leader that is the defining element and driving force of their groups. And they they don't really practice thought reform. Uh, they have found these people all agree and they have a strong sense of cohesiveness in their philosophy that they all agree and join together. Mm. Uh, likewise, let's not label the Republican Party a cult and call Donald Trump a cult leader because that that isn't true. He was elected then. Then uh, he was subject to the checks and balances of the United States government, the courts, the Congress, etc. We all saw that play out. And the people that support Trump support him because he is enunciating what they believe and what they have believed for their probably their entire lives. So saying that they're somehow brainwashed and that Trump uh, is using thought reform tactics to uh, you know, have a support uh, network of people that will vote for him and support him. I think that's ridiculous. And I think we should stay away from uh, carelessly labeling uh, groups as cults. Mm -hmm. And but having said that, you know, I mean, there are groups that most definitely fit that description. And I think when we see it, and we see that this behavior, the pattern of behavior and the structure of the group is consistent with the definition of a destructive cult, of which I've offered, and, and I've offered the most accepted uh, definition that was established by Lifton, who, by the way, is Jewish. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, <laughs> so any, anyway, I think that's the way we should approach it. And we should really be careful about using that label. Okay, um, so can you explain the difference between a religion and a cult? And uh, how do we in the Orthodox Jewish community protect ourselves from cult leaders and figures within our own religion? Well, the definition of a religion is that people have a belief system. It is not predicated on one individual. It is much broader and, and more pervasive than that. So we have Judaism, we have Christianity, we have Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. Having said that, historically, there have always been splinter groups that have broken away from these uh, mainstream religions and created personality-driven groups. Uh, that, and I think all religions are subject to these breakaway personality-driven cults. Uh, when we deal with religion, uh, typically there is democratic governance. There are there is financial transparency. 
and there is uh, frequently uh, interreligious dialogue with other groups. Uh, the group doesn't see itself as exclusive in the sense that it is above and and superior to all other groups. It doesn't harbor a we they mentality, and instead, you know, is is more open than that. And and most religions would acknowledge that if someone leaves, uh, they are not necessarily damned or or a terrible person. They may move from uh, one branch of a religion to another or from, from one religion to another and not be uh, seen in a very negative light. But typically, when you look at mainstream religion, what you see is accountability, transparency, uh, participatory democratic governance in many groups. And, and so it's nothing like the totalitarian structure of a cult. Uh, within Judaism, uh, we have had our share of cults. I mean, there is one group that I've dealt with fairly extensively. It's called Lev Tahor, or the Pure Ones. This was a group led by a renegade, self-proclaimed rabbi who was not a rabbi, who ultimately broke away and from the established uh, Hasidic sect, the Satmars, and recruited people from the Sadmar uh, group into his own. And he became very, very extreme. Uh, children were abused. Uh, women were abused. And the group uh, first was in the United States. Then it went to Canada. Then it went to Guatemala. And eventually authorities would do repeated raids on the community and uh, removing many of the children who were suffering. Uh, they were living in horrible conditions, and there was brutal corporal punishment used in the group. And I know this because I worked with uh, within the Satmar community in Brooklyn, and I uh, was retained by members of the Satmar community to work with children that were removed from Lev Tahor. Uh, many of them had come from Guatemala. So I was able to talk to them firsthand and to talk to families, uh, mothers firsthand, that suffered horribly in this particular group. So that would be an example of a renegade uh, Jewish cult, uh, if you would call it Jewish, in the sense that it all the people that were in it came from the Jewish community. And they were led by this very bizarre, uh, very abusive man. Mm. Wow. There's actually a book that I really highly recommend. It's called um, The Horizontal Society by uh, Dr. Jose Faur, who's a rabbi, passed away a few years ago. And basically what he was, his whole uh, thesis was that um, Judaism was a was a horizontal society originally. It was, there were checks and balances. There were different bodies that, that were meant to kind of, um, you know, stop abusive power. Like, um, you know, the monarchy cannot usurp the priesthood and the priesthood can't usurp the, uh, the monarchy. And if anyone violates the law, um, then they lose their power. So it's like the, no no one is above the law. But what's happened to Judaism today in men, not not in in I wouldn't say overall, but in certain groups, like you mentioned, um, it became kind of a vertical society where um, there's there's a hierarchy and 
the the one on top of that hierarchy is basically God, even though he's a person, he's taking the place of God because whatever he says goes. And there's this dynastic structure now. It's not. It's like in the Torah, there it was never dynastic. Moses's sons are kind of irrelevant. Um, it's it's you, it's a meritocracy. Um, so that that's kind of an interesting uh, thing, the phenomenon. But I would ask something like. Um, you know, we see there's well-meaning groups like Chabad, right, um, who are, it sounds like they're in a cult, based on your description. So can you maybe explain, because people will say, you know, they do a lot of good, and they're not necessarily harmful. So um, how would you uh, assess that? Well, in my opinion, uh, the Chabad fits the profile of a personality-driven cult. Uh, now, the Lubavitchers, historically were not within that you know definition uh they had as you say a dynastic succession but when the rebbe schneerson came in everything changed uh he became the mashiach uh they worshiped him as the mashiach he transcended simply being the rebbe uh and when he died the fact that they have not replaced him that they are a Hasidic sect with no Rebbe. I can remember when they used to ridicule the Bre Breslov Hasidim. They would say, how can you be Hasids if you have no Rebbe? You have no Rebbe. You're, you have no sense of co cohesion under a proper leader. So the Hasidic sects, uh, the Satmars, the Lubavitchers, the Breslovers, all that all were uh, typically led by a, a chief rebbe, a head rebbe, and that would be a dynasty in which it there was a succession going through a particular family, a particular lineage. Uh, the Satmars, I would not regard as a cult uh, because they're just simply following their traditions that they have followed for many, many generations. Uh, going all the way back to the formation of the Hasidic movement under the Baal Shem Tov. So the idea that that your Rebbe is the Mashiach, that is a very unique kind of claim. And Rebbe Schneerson certainly had an opportunity before he died to basically say, you guys, stop it. You know, I'm not the Mashiach and don't call me the Mashiach. But he did not do that. And, and I think you can see the residue of that in the fact that they feel, apparently, that no one can fill the Rebbe's shoes, mm. that he alone uh, was, you know, he was the this unique person and that no one can fill his shoes, no one can succeed him. So now they're in the same position as the Breslovers, who uh, probably uh, the Rebbe... Uh, that they had their last rebbe also made certain it appears messianic claims and that he also became a very a defining personality as the rebbe schneerson did so the those are you know very different kinds of uh hasidim mm -hmm. in in the sense that they have they have almost deified their leader and they follow their leader. I mean, uh, when I've talked to Chabad people, they will talk about Rebbe Schneerson as if he wasn't even human, that yeah, he yeah. was superhuman. And so I think there, Rebbe Schneerson did a lot of good things. 
Yes, he yes. did a lot of mitzvahs. He encouraged mitzvahs. I mean, that was the whole thing about the Chabad movement to enrich Jewish life, to bring uh, the bring Judaism to people that were relatively assimilated secular Jews and to encourage them to observe the mitzvot. But it went far beyond that and it became a personality driven group. Mm. And that's what makes it so hard because all of us know the Chabadniks and they're usually very well-meaning people who dedicate their life to the Jewish people, which is a beautiful thing. And uh, he did so much good that it's it's hard to have this conversation, but at the same time, like it's an elephant in the room. Um, but I do find it fascinating that, you know, they promote like daily Rambam learning, right? Who's a rationalist, probably you would consider that an anti-cult kind of leader, think for yourself and everything. And they're pretty rational in general. Like they're 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 usually their Hasidic brand of study, the Tanya, is considered one of the most um, um, intellectually uh, rigorous kind of um, books that you could study. And then you have with like, for example, Breslov. There's um, there's Chaye Mohoran, and if I could, you know, I would tell our listeners to go to Chaye Mohoran three oh nine or three twenty, and you'll see some really crazy statements about you can't, you know, you can't access God without without the the Rebbe and only the Rebbe can, you know, um, connect you to God and so on and so forth. So when you when you read this stuff, it's crazy. But one of the things that you read straight up in Lakute Moran, the, the writings of Rabbi Natan, who's the student of Rabbi Nachman, he never wrote anything down. So he says, like, you have to basically be simple with God. Don't question things. Don't like basically shut off a part of your mind. And you shouldn't study philosophy because it's evil and it's Greek and and like philosophy obviously leads to free thinking and thinking for yourself. So they're 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 doing something that Chabad isn't doing. They're doing something that they're actively telling you to not think for yourself. Um, and one of the troubling things, if I have to mention that the, the Rebbe himself said about himself is that um, it's atzmus uh, umehus melubash beguf that the like the Rebbe is or the tzaddik. He's talking about the the tzaddik is uh, basically the the essence of God in flesh, which is super problematic. Um, they have different explanations. Some Chabadniks will say, you know, we're, we're not, that's misunderstood. And other ones, you know, the, the Messianic ones, uh, which I think are most of them, uh, will say that, you know, that's, he's he's being honest. So um, I think these are all troubling things, but it's an important conversation to have because in the Jewish world, we, we often feel like we're, you know, um, impervious to these kind of things. And it doesn't exist. But the truth is, it does. Oh, most definitely. I mean, uh, I think what we have to do also is look at a classical cult leader like Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who now is known as Osho. Oh, yeah. And his he still has followers online and they play his videos, his lectures. Uh, he was a notorious cult leader that was uh, basically deported from the United States for criminal activity. He started in India. And he would say that you must have a living master. You mm -hmm. must have a living master that can awaken your, your spiritual self, who can open you to the spiritual realm. If you do not have a living spiritual master, you, you won't get it. You won't experience it. And so there was this same insistence 
on the all-powerful personality of the guru, uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And I think that would be a parallel to what we're talking about with Rebbe Schneerson or Rebbe Nachum with the Breslovers, is what we're talking about is this insistence that this personality is necessary for your salvation. Uh, when I talk to people that are in Bible-based groups that identify as Christian, uh, their belief is that Jesus is necessary for salvation. But when you really talk to them, it's Jesus plus. And in the same sense, we're talking about these extreme uh, Hasidic sects, it's God plus. It, God is not enough. You need the, the Rebbe. Or in the case of these Christian cults, you, Jesus is not enough. You need our leader. You need what our leader teaches to supplement what is in the New Testament. So whenever you're in a group and they start to tell you that, that your basic beliefs are not enough, and that somehow the leader of the group is necessary for you to, to reach God or to realize salvation, something is terribly wrong mm -hmm. and you need to step away. And you alluded to something that I think is a, an increasing phenomenon now, which is people are recruited online. There mm -hmm. are cult leaders that are online. They indoctrinate people through their YouTube videos. They have uh, Facebook groups. They have people following them on Twitter. There's even a cult called the TikTok cult that was uh, le that's led by an Asian uh, supposed Christian leader in Los Angeles. So this is a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. That is that people find groups online, join online, and even give money to people online through PayPal or whatever. And that's the latest phenomenon. And could a life coach, could a life coach or a health coach become a cult leader? Listen, cults come in all shapes and sizes with many masks. So it could be health. It could be multi-level marketing. It could be politics. It could be theosophy. It could be seminar series, self-help, you know, stuff. Uh, it can be it can manifest in many ways. So what you look for is not what the group believes, but how does this group behave? How is the leader regarded? What is the structure, the hierarchy of the group? Is it totalitarian? Are they using identifiable techniques of manipulation? Uh, because as I often tell people, if if it looks like a cult, and it acts like a cult, maybe it's a cult, uh, regardless of its trappings or or how it tries to present itself, which is often very deceptive. So like, what would you say about like Andrew Tate? You know, he's very popular right now. It's kind I, of borderline, you know, right? I, I, think, I think I wanna know more. Right. I mean, I wanna know more. He is currently accused of crimes. Uh, it could be that he's guilty. Uh, it could be that he's very much uh, like Lawrence Ray, a cult leader who's now, you know, in prison pretty much for the rest of his life in New York, who recruited students at Sarah Lawrence College. There's a documentary about him. Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't know. I mean, we don't know if Andrew Tate is uh, guilty 
or if he's innocent. So we'll, we're going to have to wait and go through the process of his trial and hearing more from the people that claim to be victims. And for our listeners, I want them to check out on, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but you referenced Osho, uh, the Bhagwan, which was uh, the documentary was called Wild Wild Country. And that was a really interesting pod, um, uh, uh, documentary. And the the leader, I thought the leader was was Ma'anan Sheila. She was she wasn't, but but no, no, but she went to prison. A Bhagwan, the leader, threw her under the bus. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she had been his devoted follower for so many years, and she was his PR person. I mean, she would meet with the media, say whatever in defense of Bhagwan. And she would end up going to prison because of her involvement with Bhagwan. But uh, Bhagwan ended up, you know, running. He he left the U.S. He ended up back in India where he died from heart failure. Mm -hmm. And now he's being mythologized and, and, and looked upon reverently as this great guru, when in reality he was a sociopath and the most abusive kind of person. And, and in fact, there's a documentary, you can find it online, uh, where Mashila talks to Bhagwan through her interview and, and the reporter from Australia uh, puts a screen up so that Bhagwan can face her, uh, you know, through, through this, uh, you know, uh, interview that was done. And Bhagwan is very condemning of her. And she says basically that he was a con man that he was a fraud, that he knew what he was doing. I mean, this was a guy who had 90 Rolls Royces mm -hmm. in the United States that his, his members gave him. Uh, he, he leached hundreds of millions of dollars from probably more than 30,000 devotees. So when you're looking at Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, uh, of course he would say, I am totally innocent, I am being persecuted. Frequently, cult leaders will say that uh, any kind of scrutiny, any kind of uh, trying to hold them accountable, and they'll say, well, you know, you're persecuting me. Uh, you're coming after me. Uh, and Bhagwan would frequently say, uh, you're coming after me because I represent a different religion than the majority of people in the U.S., or you're coming after me because I'm an Indian uh, in reality, it was all about building permits, zoning, and mm -hmm. and uh, ultimately he uh, launched a bioterrorism attack against people in Oregon, where he was. He wanted to take over local government. And during an election cycle, he had his followers spread salmonella on salad bars in multiple restaurants, sickening hundreds of people. And that was the beginning of the end for him. Uh, but basically, whenever anyone would say, well, Bhagwan, you're doing things that are against the law, he would say, no, no, you're persecuting me. Mm -hmm. So when a group refuses to discuss what they're doing, and they immediately try to shift it on you, mm -hmm. rather than explain, well, this is what we're do doing, and this is why we're doing it, and we're sorry if we violated local laws, uh, when they say they're being persecuted, that's a typical reaction often of a destructive cult. Yeah, that that actually reminds me of uh, there's a rabbi, um, Eliezer Berland, who was a, a Breslov uh, leader who was accused of raping a bunch of women or 
um, acting inappropriately or whatever it is. And he was running around the world kind of uh, avoiding getting arrested. He finally got arrested. But one of the th claims that he made and like they, they said, like, OK, you were caught in, in the act of sin. Um, but how do we you know, how, how do they actually um, have him face the music? And for, for their perspective, all he has to do is say, you know, I'm in this is a this is a Kabbalistic term. I'm in Olam Ha'atzilut. I'm in the in an upper world, basically, that where where um, there's no distinction between good and evil. So what you perceive as as evil is actually because you are living in a state of evil because you yourself are impure. You, you, you know, it's it's an amazing manipulation that's used on people that. Yeah, it's 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 kind of crazy. But uh, again, I don't think it's so um, widespread. I think it's just a few minor groups, but it's still something to pay attention to. One thing I wanted to tie it into is that the Torah um, is very anti-cult, because if you see when Moses dies, we are not told about his uh, location of his burial place, because, you know, the, many of the commentators, including uh, Gersonides, says that, you know, it would be turned into a shrine for worship. And, um, you know, there's all these checks and balances. There's the, the priesthood of Israel um, was different than the priesthood of the pagan world, because the pagan world, you would have to go to a priest to kind of um, tell you your fortunes or, you know, kind of conjure up the spirits of the dead in every pagan religion, where in Judaism, the dead is forbidden to the priest. He's not allowed to go near the dead. He becomes ritually impure. And it's it's a polemic against that abuse of power, because that's what really happens when you go to someone for help, when you're in your most vulnerable state, he's going to tell you, oh, I, I, I see the spirit of, uh, you know, your grandfather or whatever telling you to do this, this and that. Um, and the Torah is kind of making all of these um, lines in the sand where you're not supposed to cross. And if he violates his, um, you know, his, the law, he, he loses his priesthood. And if he he can't own land. He can't, um, he has to live off of the tithing, right? So there's all these ways to kind of control his uh, power. Um, and you see this throughout, you know, the Torah where where you have, for example, you're not allowed to go to sorcerers or necromancers. These are very common in the ancient world. And the reason is, is because they're, they are the ways we can get abused. They're the ways we can get taken advantage of. Um, and that's, I find to be very um, comforting as a Jew, knowing that, you know, the true faith is about, you know, thinking for yourself, questioning things. We're, we're constantly teaching our children on Passover, right, which which is uh, coming up. We we have the four questions and we teach our children to challenge and and questioning has always been part of Jewish tradition, at, you know, and I, I think that, you know, it's something that we should be very proud of. Well, I think in the Torah also what we realize is that David made mistakes, Yes, Solomon yes. made mistakes and and Moses made mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so we see our our leaders uh, as as fallible as human and not supernatural. Absolutely. And that that's part of being uh, a Jew is realizing, you know, everybody makes mistakes, even the greatest people in Jewish history. Right. And and what we see in the Torah also is that they learn from their mistakes mm -hmm. and they try to be better people, yes. but that they don't feel that they're above the law. They feel that they're subject to the same rules and guidelines as everyone else. And so growing up as a Jew, <clears throat> that's something you feel. You feel that, you know, I am responsible 
uh, I have been chosen for responsibility and I am not above the commandments and any and and any leader that I may have is not above the commandments of God. And so I think that's something that's very important. And and I think uh, Israel has had its share of cult problems. Uh, the Israeli government sent a delegation here some years ago to formulate their policy papers on cults, and they invited many people from the Jewish community in New York and around the country to help them develop those guidelines, and I was one of them. Uh, and uh, they did this in response to the, to the fact that they do have a cult problem in Israel and that it's come out in the press on numerous occasions. A particular leader who has uh, abused children, who has abused women, and that leader is taken to court and punished. And it's shocking when you when you read this the the reporting that's done about some of these groups, how long they went on, uh, whether it was in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem or wherever it was, how long did this group go on where people were being hurt before the leader was held accountable? And of course, all the leaders will say, you know, I'm being persecuted, uh, they're singling me out, and so on and so on. But you know. I've worked in Israel and, and, and seen firsthand that these groups do exist there. And I think we should recognize that this is a phenomenon that is occurring not only throughout the United States, but around the world. Absolutely. So um, before we go, I just have, you know, two questions, short questions. Um, how can someone know that they're in a cult? And if they are, how would they escape considering all the, you know, that, their safety may be compromised um, if they leave or expose the cult. Ben, it's all about education. The more you read about cults, the more you can realize whether or not the group you're in fits that, you know, profile. Uh, that's why I wrote the book Cults Inside Out, which is a compendium of information, historical uh, warning signs, you know, how do cults manipulate people, and I think the way that people usually leave is they basically see something that is inconsistent with what the group has said it believes. So the leader is hypocritical. They see the leader behaving in a way that is completely the opposite of what the group has been taught to, to believe is the, is the proper behavior. Uh, the leader could be involved in sexual relationships with other members of the group. The leader is taking advantage of people financially. The leader is uh, very brutal in punishing people. And, and people in the group are shocked. Someone is shocked. And that is the beginning of them opening their mind to the possibility that something is terribly wrong. And then as you read and you educate yourself, uh, you can see whether or not the group that you're involved in actually is a destructive cult and whether they are using thought reform techniques. And then the key to recovery and, and, and moving into mainstream life again, even for people that have been in a group for a very long time, is again, education. Educating yourself about how these groups operate, uh, learning how other people that have left similar groups uh, went on with their lives, how they recovered, 
what were what were the tools that they found useful and so i think that there is a way out because many people do leave cults every day uh but you know the the thing about it ben is what have they lost what have they sacrificed because yeah. of their involvement in a particular group uh they may have uh have cut off family for years and uh, they may have burned a lot of bridges they may have uh, have have left college uh suffered financial setbacks uh employment situations uh where th where they really it's very difficult for them to get back into the mainstream but but i think it can be done and it is being done by many many people every day and i would encourage anyone that has left a group that has been called a cult to really read the literature about cults so that they understand and contextualize their experience and in my book cults inside out i included so many uh comments from former cult members uh from victims so that people can hear their voices and understand i am not alone i think that's a very important piece of recovery is recognizing how many people have gone through this experience and that you are not alone yeah i think um the deprogramming and reintegrating into society aspect of it is something that we overlook but like it's so important uh to give people who left like the guidance and support um, and to know that they can reach out to people like you uh, for help. So how, do you have anything besides your book, anything else you can plug? How could people find you, website? Well, the Cult Education Institute is a nonprofit educational 501c3, and they can find that huge database, which was first launched in 1996 at culteducation.com, or people can follow me on Twitter, Rick Allen Ross, or they can go to the Facebook page, Cult Education Institute. And there also is a YouTube channel where you can uh, watch educational videos and understand uh, all of the intricacies and dynamics of destructive cults. So I would encourage people to go to culteducation.com, and that would be the beginning of reaching all of those different sites and all of that educational information. This was amazing, very informative, and I really thank you for taking the time. Um, so hope to do this maybe again one day. Well, thank you, Ben. It's been great. Thank you. Take care. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, Keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.